This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives in the modern world with me, Sarah Tasker. This is episode 21. So this week I am talking with my friend Helen Stevens. Helen is an illustrator and an author of children's books. If you're a parent, you've almost definitely got at least one of them on your bookshelves. Talking to Helen always makes me feel better about life. She's somebody who has been a role model to me as a parent, as a creative, and as somebody who has just figured out who she is and is happy to live life on her own terms. I cannot imagine my life without her in it. And I am almost a little bit reluctant to share her with you all, but because I love you, I am going to. She shares a heap of advice in this interview about getting published, about staying true to your own voice and investing in your creative process. And a lot of her advice is so transferable because I have been using her tips and suggestions for the last decade. And I know that whatever it is you do, you're going to find something really helpful in what she has to say. Hello, Helen. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm really excited to be talking to you for my podcast. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you. A bit weird because we're usually face to face, aren't we? But it's really nice. <laughs> I wish we should have done it face to face when I was. Yeah, I know, I know. We get distracted by bread, soda bread, and children and, and adventures. <laughs> All the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's nice to actually have a dedicated talking time. Yeah. People might not know who you are, so would you like to introduce yourself? Well, I am Helen Stevens. I write and illustrate picture books for children. And do all the other stuff that's associated like with that, like drawing my sketchbook, go and visit schools, book festivals. But yeah, the main part of my job is writing and illustrating picture books. And what books have you written that people may know for their children? So probably How to Hide a Lion is the most famous of them all. Probably Fleabag. Fleabag was on Blue Peter, wasn't it? It was on Blue Peter and I got to go on Blue Peter and I got a Blue Peter badge. <laughs> that was exciting. <laughs> Oh, what else? What else have I done? You've had some on CBBS. My mind goes blank and I can't remember anything. <laughs> I know. Yeah, because you've had a few on CBBS bedtime hour as well. Yeah, I think they've all been the CBBS. Yeah, and How to Hide a Lion's been on stage at the Polka Theatre in London, and then I think it's coming up to Manchester this Christmas, which will be very exciting. We could go and see it, couldn't we? Can we can all go together. Yeah. yeah, definitely. All I would love that. And it's it is lovely having your books on our bookshelves because all is just kind of the right age for picture yeah. books, and she gets really excited that that she thinks it's basically your life. Well, How to Hide a Lion, other than the lion, is kind of our life. Other than the lion. <laughs> kind of me and Jerry and our daughter Frida is Iris in How to Hide a Lion. So, uh, like, yep. apart from the lion, then Ola is right, really, isn't she? She's not wrong. She's never wrong. And it, it, it's kind of set in Berwick as well, where we live. Yeah, it looks just like where when we come to visit you, it is like walking through the pages of How to Hide a Lion. Shall I tell you how that idea started? Yes. Well, we moved up to Berwick from, we were in London for about 17 years and then we had this harebrained scheme that we were going to leave London and move to Berwick. So Berwick, for anyone who isn't in the UK, we should say, is on the very border of England and Scotland. It is a small, quite a sleepy town. Seasidey town, lots of beautiful grey stone buildings, right on the seaside, lots of sea mist rolling in. Very different to London. Very beautiful and completely different to London. And different people as well. Different kind of people, everything about it was different. And we just decided it was time for a change and we had this massive change and we came up here. And 
soon as we moved here, I just had this image of a bright yellow lion walking into town. I just couldn't get the image out of my head that the stonework is all really silvery grey and we have these silvery grey sea mists rolling. And I just had this picture of this yellow lion walking into this silvery grey town. And it was something about the silvery grey and the yellow that appealed to me. It was also something about the huge size of the lion. And I started to draw in Berwick. So uh, Berwick has three beautiful bridges and we have these sea mists that roll in. And I was drawing in Berwick lots of times. And every now and again, I would draw a lion in the picture. And I thought, well, this is, this is how ideas start for me. Like something will click into my head and I can't shake it off until I've pursued it a bit more. So I decided that I would try to write a story about a lion arriving in this sleepy town and how the people would react. And um, so I rang my publisher and said, I have this big idea. I think I'm going to go somewhere. I think we might be talking lions. And I always check with my publisher before I progress much further, because if they've just done a book about a lion, then I might go and see another publisher. So I spoke to the publisher I was working with at the time, and that was fine. Lions were fine. So I went to Edinburgh Zoo to draw lions, but every time I went, the lions were asleep. They were always hiding behind a bush. Yeah, they always are. They never do lion stuff. (laughs) Apparently they're fed at early hours, like six o'clock in the morning, and by the time all the visitors are there, they're sleeping. So I thought, well, that's it. The lions are always hiding. I can't draw the lions. I'm going to put this book aside. Uh And it took a couple of weeks before I suddenly thought, the lions are hiding. This is a story about a lion that has to hide from the people of this sleepy town. And that's how it all started. I've never heard that story before. You've never told me that. Really? I've not told you that. No. All of my books start like that with an image that will not go away or a title or just something that creeps into my head and won't leave. And it's interesting because it sounds like they come from living real life rather than from you sitting at your desk waiting for them to happen. I would never, ever sit at my desk. No, when I say never, ever, I do sometimes sit at my desk with a blank piece of paper and try and think of an idea and then remember that doesn't work. (laughs) It works. Or I, I force something out and you can feel the force in it. You can feel that I forced it and it just doesn't work. Well, ideas seem to just kind of arrive. It's it's about recognising them. Yeah. You... About recognising when an idea has arrived. Getting good at spotting it while it's still there. Yeah, when something just keeps niggling and it won't go until I draw it, then I know it's an idea. It is yeah. all a bit big magic. I know you're not the biggest fan of the big magic theory. Well, I listen to the big magic. Elizabeth Gilbert, isn't it? Yeah. I've, I, I listen to those with absolute fascination because I agree with so much she says, but I don't believe it's magic. Yeah. It's just human creativity. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel as if any magic comes along and makes it happen. I listen to, I've listened to all those Elizabeth Gilbert podcasts. And absolutely love them. But the magic bit, I always have a problem with it because I just feel as if all of my books are down to recognizing when an idea arrives. But it's all just hard work, and it's all about sitting at your desk every day and doing it. There's something in it being magic. That takes the credit away. Yeah, I, yeah. It's funny because there, there is a kind of chemistry to it, but I don't think of it like magic. Like, I have an idea at the moment, and I started to talk to you about it the other day, and I am very wary about talking about it, and I'm not going to really, I'm not going to talk about it now, and I don't talk to anybody else about it at the moment, sure. because sometimes an idea comes, and it feels as if it's full of spark and really lovely, and then you tell too many people about it, and its energy goes. It's almost like all of the feelings that are in that story disappear if you talk about them too much, and so I've got to get it on paper first. That does sound yeah. a bit magical. I know it does, but I don't think it is. 
But I actually completely agree with all of that that you're saying. And it's funny that that seems to be the case across all different creative pursuits. Like even I find if I run out of things to write about for my blog, like it's because I'm not living enough life. And it's when I go and do other stuff, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got an amazing idea. And I scribble it down on my phone or yeah, it's when you're doing the other stuff that, that the work comes to you. That's absolutely right. Well, like my parents gave us a dishwasher and we were really pleased we got this dishwasher. It was really great. And then I, I realised I was really missing the time stood at the sink. No small person could get me. I'd say, no, I'm washing up. I can't do anything. Look, my hands are wet. <laughs> and I had time to kind of sit, but, dip, you know, stand at the sink and daydream. And I, it wasn't work. I didn't need to think about it. But your brain goes off in nice creative tangents when you're not thinking too hard. So we got rid of the dishwasher. That's actually kind of really good advice because they say that it's a bit like meditation, like things like hoovering where you're um, engaged, but you're not having to concentrate so it's that kind of in-between state yeah and you know I go out drawing with my sketchbook from life a lot and during periods where I'm out with a sketchbook drawing I find my writing happens much more easily and I think it's because while I'm drawing even though the drawing is nothing to do with the subject of the story I'm working on there's something about the state of, of being in that kind of intense concentration which is which is also kind of meditative and very relaxed and creative state of mind but quite open yeah but focused enough that I'm not thinking too hard and during those periods where I'm out drawing every day all sorts of story ideas pop up or an idea a story that I am working on lots of issues get fixed during that it is magic no it's not it's not magic sorry (laughs) (laughs) it is magical and it's something like I don't think we're all very good necessarily at making time for that in our working lives. If you have a creative job, it's really easy to think I have to be at my desk and I have to be working and that all that other stuff can kind of slide out of your life if you're not careful. That that is just so true. And the thing is that um, my publishers obviously don't allocate time for me to do those things. If I don't allocate that time, if I don't cross out days in my diary for me that I know are days where I'm going wandering around the coast drawing or sitting in graveyards or whatever I'm going to do that day, nobody else is going to tell me to do it. And I think if I said to publishers, I'm not going to do that work today, I'm going to go out drawing, they'd think, well, what a waste of time. But it's maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, actually. Not all publishers would think that. But that is really an essential part of my job. The bit of being at my desk completing the work is not the only aspect of the job. I need to allow the ideas to come. And there is, I think what you're kind of touching on there about the publishers is, even if it's imagined, we imagine that people will see it as self-indulgent or sort of lazy or something and (laughs) it it can be much harder to justify but it's the most important part so we need to kind of all get past our guilt about it the other thing is that I get offers of work and I get really excited about them (laughs) and I just want to say yes and so I end up saying yes to all sorts of things and then realize that I've eaten into all of the other time that I need to be out drawing I mean I've been doing this for my first book was published in 98 you would have thought that by now I would have a really good system (laughs) for making sure that I don't become overwhelmed with stuff at my desk but I still work at it all the time trying to make sure that I protect time to go out drawing. You seem to have a good balance I remember you saying to me a little while ago that every few years or so you try and give yourself like a clear stretch of time to move your own work on. Yeah that's right yeah there was one particular time where so when I was first published I left art school I moved down to London 
I didn't really know how my work was going to look because when I was at art school, we were lucky enough to be on a course. We went to Glasgow School of Art. When I say we, I'm talking about my partner, Jerry Turley. He's an illustrator too. And we met at art school. When we were at art school, we drew from life all the time. We were so lucky. That's what our course was about, drawing from life. But then when you leave art school and you're in the real world and you take a portfolio of drawings from life to a publisher it makes no sense like how is this going to translate into a book how can we use this and so after art school then I had to start on a whole new journey of learning how that lovely basis of drawing that lovely kind of um if you can't draw there's nothing to base everything else on so that was really valuable but I had to learn how to use that in publishing so I remember we moved to London and I started to ring up publishers and go and see people. But eventually managed to get a foot in the door and get stuff published, which was really brilliant. But because I'd gone on this massive journey from sketchbooks to something publishable, and the people I was taking advice from for the work to be publishable was the publishers, I feel as if for a little while I went far too far down a line of being commercial and kind of forgot about my own voice. Because you were trying to please these publishers and deliver what they expected. Yeah. So after the first few years of that, which was brilliant, it was the best apprenticeship into writing and illustrating children's books. It was fantastic. And I met some lovely people. And I don't think anybody else felt they were manipulating me. And I don't really think, looking back on it, there was any, you know, I was young and needing advice. And they were nice enough to give it. But when I came out of the other end of it, I felt as if I'd lost my voice somewhere along the line. So there was a point I'd done about oh gosh, 30 books for babies. And I'd written some picture books, which I'm still really proud of now, one of which is Poochie Poo, which I did with David Ficklin. I still love that book now. But there was something about the the visual language I was using that wasn't right. It, It didn't have enough emotional depth. And so if I wanted to do a really sad story or something where something very messy happened, I couldn't do it because I had this really pastel color palette that was really limiting. And I felt it had been kind of put upon me because everybody kept saying, brighten the colours up, make everything lighter and brighter. And children like bright. That was the message. You and I, I think, have maybe a similar background in the kind of a desire to please people and be liked when we were younger, especially. And also in those early years, I was living in London. Jerry and I were like babes in the wood, (laughs) living in London scraping together money where we could to pay for our little bedsit flat and so if work was coming my way it was very hard for me to say I'm not going to do it like that because we were just we were just managing and those books that I did back then became really successful some of them sold in you know 12 13 languages and did really well you know we had some nice big royalty checks and things were you know it was very hard to say hang on a minute this is not what I want to do but it did get to a point where I just decided that's it I think I've got I've got enough hold now I've got enough base to stop now and and decide what I want to do and I took a year out and in that year started going around sketchbooks again I started to remember the work I'd done before I was published And that was just the best year. It was just such a lovely creative time and incredibly scary because we had hardly any, we were having royalty money. We were basically living on royalties, really. How old were you when that happened? It was probably 10 years, maybe 11 years ago, so 34. So it's sort of similar to my age. Because I think that there is 
a point as well where you you learn to trust your own voice a bit more and it can feel really hard to do that when you're a bit younger. That's right. I also had some psychotherapy around then, which was just massive, life-changing, and made me see that actually I had some power in this and I could fix it. I think psychotherapy is something pretty much everybody should have. It gives you so much insight into yourself. Yeah, it was just fantastic. Um, so yes, I ended up drawing up Battersea Dog's home one day, met this dog, the most beautiful little dog, and drew the dog, took the sketchbook home, ignored it for a couple of months. In another notebook somewhere, I had this name, Fleabag. I'd scribbled this name, Fleabag, and this is a bit embarrassing to say, but he was maybe going to be like a character made of a mothball, which is such a bad (laughs) idea. It's so terrible. That's probably why it stayed in the notebook. But, um, yeah, the two came together. I looked at this dog drawing one day, and I remembered that name, Fleabag, and thought, ah! there we are there's an idea and I remember I showed it to my agent and didn't I wasn't asking her to show it to anybody I just said look I know I've disappeared for a year or so doing this stuff but I think I've got this character I might work on and within the hour I had an email back from a pub I think what had happened was my agent Hillary had sent it off to my now my current publisher and she all she wrote on the email was who will give this dog a home to this publisher and they replied we will <laughs> and, uh, and so that was it I was back into publishing again it was just kind of serendipity really they were willing to wait while I decided how it was going to look and what was going to happen in the story they were so incredibly patient and creative this is Alison Green Books and Alison Green is the editor and the designer is Zoe Tucker. And they both were just so patient and happy to wait for me to decide what it was going to be and inspiring as well. The Fleabag was the first book that I wrote that I really felt had my, it, it was what I wanted it to be. And it's the first really sad book I did as well. Yeah, it is. A, it has yeah. got a sad, it's got a happy ending. Yeah, ending, but it, it gets very sad in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> It is interesting, actually, because we have a range of those books on our bookshelf and there is a a visual difference, a noticeable difference between, like, Poochie Poo and Fleabag that fits. Now you tell me the story, I can absolutely see all the things you're talking about. Mm. I tell you, there was another thing that happened in publishing when I was first published, and I think it it was a real thing of the time, was that I think it was because publishers had started to realise that they could sell books on a worldwide scale, so they wanted to co edition books, and that was really important. It was a way of making a lot of money. And so at the time, this is back, you know, 98 kind of time, I was always encouraged never to give my books a sense of place because the theory was if the book had no sense of place, that it would sell all over the world because it wouldn't be very recognisably British. You're very relatable to everybody. Yeah, which was always a problem for me because I draw from life a lot and where I live is always important to the books. Thank God that that seems to not be the opinion anymore. And it's funny how How to Hide a Lion has a really, really distinctive mm. sense of place and yet has sold in more co-editions than anything I've done before. So that that's a good thing that's happened. Publishers have stopped asking to get rid of sense of it place. It makes sense as well, really, if you think... It's like a little vicarious holiday in a picture book. You go somewhere yeah. different. It's, it's very funny, though, how in How to Hide a Lion, it's, to me, it's very much Berwick, Northumberland. And yet when you see it published in German with German writing on it, suddenly it does actually look like a little town in <laughs> Germany. But with the Italian writing on it, it could be Italy. It probably yeah. couldn't be America, Just, though. Yeah. And I think the feedback I get from America is that it looks very British. They like how understated it is. The lion, when he becomes the town hero, all he asks for is a hat. 
that. They think that's really, really crazily British. <laughs> yeah, it probably is, actually. <laughs> so then it's a good thing for your books to seem to seem that they have a sense of place, you know. I suppose we should probably talk about there may be people listening who feel like they have a children's um, book in them and are looking for somewhere to get started. You must have things that you say to people in that position. Yeah, well, it's, it's different for everybody. And when I go and hear other illustrators talk about where their ideas come or how they illustrate, it's always different for everybody. But for me, drawing from life... And keeping an ear out for things that catch my imagination is how I start. But then after that, it's a real leap of faith. So I have this thing in my head and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, lion, that could, you know, that could go somewhere. There's also another voice saying, oh, that's rubbish. <laughs> You've got to just ignore that, to completely ignore it and just just go with it. A big leap of faith until it starts to take form. There's that whole part between thinking you can do it and then having a dummy book to show a publisher which is so difficult and all about faith in yourself hanging in there while the idea comes together well and I always say hang in there send your stuff to lots of publishers keep going keep going but then the other day I was talking to my designer Zoe Tucker and she was telling me that she'd been to a lecture by Oliver Jeffers I don't know if you know Oliver Jeffers weirdly because I'm talking on a podcast I've completely forgotten everything that he's written but he's really famous how to catch a star was one of his anyway he's huge look him up he's huge and apparently she went to one of his talks and somebody put their hand up and said what advice would you give to any new illustrators out there and all he said he just said are you good enough wow the end it is down to that isn't it faith that you can do it and just keep keep going yeah and you have to want it enough to keep going despite that voice in your head and wanting it enough that is one of the big key things as well one bit of advice that you gave me actually that I pass on to lots of people I work with is about the postcards you used to send out maybe you still do send out postcards to publishers well I know this is weird but one time there wasn't an internet <laughs> and and I was alive then and when um when I first tried to get published we didn't have websites and things and I would have to drag my folio around from door to door and and it must be brilliant for illustrators now wasn't it because they've all got a website but at the same time for a publisher to have something printed in their hands I just think that's so valuable and um, when I first started out I used to have postcards printed so I'd have sort of I don't know 300 postcards printed with your work on with my work on the front nothing on the back and on the back I would write a message saying do you know, I used to write a message asking for advice. So I'd say, I would really like to illustrate a picture book. Would it be possible to show you my portfolio? Would you be able to help me out? All the best, Helen. And I would just send those off to hundreds of places. I would drop, you know, hundred at a time into the letterbox. Where did you find the addresses from? Like the yellow pages? Writers and artists, your, oh, wow. your book. That's still available It's and it's still really valuable. It's brilliant. And I, I still think that's a brilliant thing to do because if somebody gets that and they love they love the image on the postcard, they'll stick it up on the pin board above their desk. And then I find that people would get in touch a year later, five years later, and they loved it, put it on their pin board, but had nothing immediately that they could use me for. But it kept you in their mind. Kept me in their minds. And then, you know, a couple of years down the line, something would come up and they would give me a ring. So I still think that's really valuable. It's probably in some ways even more valuable now because there must be so few people sending actual printed material. That's right. I think so. Everyone will be sending emails. The other really good thing about 22-year-old me trying to get published is how naive I was I just thought, well, when the publishers see my work, 
<laughs> Even though it's completely irrelevant, they'll see how good <laughs> it is. And they'll want to publish me. And so even though in the Writers and Artists Yearbook it would say it would say things like no unsolicited manuscripts and I'd think, Well that's for everybody else <laughs> <laughs> And so I just ignored all I, I've been on courses where people talk about how to approach publishers and they'll say, I've heard things like the manuscript must be no longer than this amount of words stapled at the top left corner two centimeters down oh i don't know what all the rules are i try not to listen to them because i had absolutely no idea about any of that when i started out and i'm so pleased i think my naivety did really help and it comes back to are you good enough because if your work is good enough they're going to take it even if you stapled it wrong yeah exactly exactly and when i have a story idea i scribble little tiny thumbnails down really really scribbly and to me it's all just about the emotional drive of the story what is the story about you know what's the emotional drive in it and I always think that is the most important thing it doesn't matter what kind of paper you draw it on or you know even if you get the number of spreads wrong that's not important what the publisher wants to say is that your story has real emotional integrity and a very specific direction or purpose i wonder as well if that's meant a bit of a natural selection has gone on with you finding the right publishers because the ones who who do want it to be all perfect and pristine right from the off are not the ones who you should be working with. Maybe, maybe. And there may be people listening who prefer to work that way, who need to present their work that way to get their publishers even. That's interesting. Maybe that's true. Yeah, maybe. Because I have been, you know, I've been talking to people about books. In fact, I sent off my contracts for my book this week. Yeah. And we've had lots of conversations about that, about finding the right fit the right book but also the right publishers the right agents oh it's so important so important I've worked probably with all of the mainstream publishers and working with each one is a really different experience and yeah my publisher now Alison Green I keep talking about her because it it's just such a lovely that we just fit together so well and it's it's so precious that and so difficult to find it took me a, a long time to find Alison. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not leaving her now. It's been, yeah, it's very hard to find the right fit. And I, I know a lot of people who I speak to, like, you get a book offer or, you know, even an invitation to talk about a book and mm-hmm. you're so bowled over and excited that you're kind of willing to accept anything. And That's right. there are people out there who will take advantage of that. The other thing is that I found in those early days, I'd go and see a publisher who I'd never worked with before and they'd be absolutely bowled over by my work and say, yes, we love it, we love it, love it. Let's do a four book deal. And I'd think, four book deal? Amazing. And I couldn't sign that contract quick enough. And I always lived to regret it. Always lived to regret it because until, you've done one book with them how do you know that the chemistry is going to be right how do you know you're going to work well together and so now I'm really resistant of signing a contract for more than one book because I want to know whether I'm going to enjoy the process of it and whether my book is still going to remain my book it all comes down then to trusting yourself a bit more and trusting that the work will keep coming trusting in the future which is a scary thing to do but it does get easier the longer you do any job I have to control getting overexcited (laughs) basically (laughs) getting overexcited about a contract that's you know you, you, you have to remember that 
the most successful books, or I have to remember that the most successful books are the ones where I feel proud of it. It's still got my voice. Or, the, you know, the publish, my publisher contributes so much. My books wouldn't be my books without my publisher. But you've got to trust that you're all heading in the same direction. I've worked with publishers before where once I'm in there, I've signed the contract, I realize the staff are not happy and that designer after designer or editor after editor leave. Mm. And in, in one book, I might have five editors. That must lead to a chaotic working process. Oh, it's a nightmare because... You know, one might love the story I've written and you're halfway there to start in the artwork and the next one comes along and has a completely different vision. Yeah, so um, it's it definitely worth signing one contract at a time and making sure that you can work with them and shopping around a little bit if you can yeah helen where can people find you online if they want to look at your work or just soak up more of your wisdom helenstevens.com on my website not the helen stevens naked model <laughs> or the helen stevens athletes stevens with a ph if you put in a google search yeah if you put in a google search for helen stevens sometimes the top search says hitler pinched my bottom <laughs> that's not me <laughs> And then I'm on Instagram because of you. Yay! Yeah. So for years, I had no website, obviously. Then I had a website and then Facebook, and I hated Facebook. And then you kept going on about this Instagram thing. And so eventually, I opened an Instagram account. And I love it. Left Facebook. Can't be doing with that. But you'll find me on Instagram. Well, I'm Helen Stevens Lion yes, on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter, but I can't. I might be Helen underscore Stevens. I'm not yeah, sure. I, can, I always sure. struggle to remember your Twitter name, but I will link to them all in the show notes so people can come and follow you. And just, just really quickly, do you find Instagram helpful in terms of getting work or is it just a fun thing or a bit of both? Uh, it's a fun thing. It's nice chatting with other illustrators. I also get feedback from people who've read my books, which is really lovely. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's nice. It's kind of a social thing. I like what I like about Instagram is is how visual it is. It's a bit like making a picture book, putting all those little squares together and making it look nice yes. as a whole. Yeah, I enjoy that. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I think people are going to be really excited about putting stuff into action. Great, that's good. Lovely to speak to you, Sarah. Show notes for everything we've talked about today are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 21 because this is episode 21 and you'll also find a little place where you can sign up if you want to get weekly emails to let you know when the next podcast is ready and the details of who is in it. You can also sign up on my website to get the details about the Insta retreat. So that is my Instagram complete comprehensive e-course. It is having a bit of a refresh at the moment coming back bigger and stronger at the end of June. It's going to launch again on June the 20th for a pre-sale now normally it sells out within at least the first day sometimes quite often the first few hours so if you are interested in that course if you want to read more about it or if you want to be one of the first ones to know when it goes on sale make sure you are subscribed to my main mailing list you can just put your email in any of the boxes that pops up or appears when you go to my website and I will obviously link to the whole page about the insta retreat and everything that you get with it in the show notes Hopefully this podcast has inspired you and got you into the right frame of mind for the rest of your day. I will see you next week and I hope you have a good one. Bye.